I'm so thankful this morning for Art and Mary, for their testimony, for sharing that with us. I struck with this, this um, word that they were given that was incorporated at the end of their testimony. Behold him from all sides, get to know him until you have no doubt of him. What are we to make of Jesus? What are we to make of who he is, what he has said, and what he has done? That's, that's the central focus of our time together this morning. And so as we set our eyes to the text, let me pray, ask for help. Lord, we confess now that we could not know you. We could not make anything of you unless you showed yourself to us, but we see your grace and mercy at work in the text this morning, that you're a God who not only created us, but in the midst of our sin and rebellion, you came for us. You didn't simply sit in heaven to watch us destroy ourselves, you extended your love to us. And so this morning, Lord, by your spirit at work, would you show us yourself here in the text? Would, would we see you from all sides? Would we get to know you until we have no doubt of you in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, listen. Confession. Last week. Last week I said that I like to quote C.S. Lewis at least quarterly, both for his thoughtfulness as well as the reality that he, you know, was also at one point a skeptic of Christianity turned believer on the basis of wrestling through a lot of what we um, have been talking about through John's gospel. So here we are this morning and as in John chapter 5. As I'm studying on Monday, I realize, oh man, I'm going to have to quote him again. Um, second week in a row, but this puts me way ahead of my quota for 2023. Lewis speaking in 1942. And then publishing these words 10 years later in mere, his book, Mere Christianity. He said this. He said, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. So already this might sound familiar to some of you, even those of you who might be here this morning and you're unchurched because this is a fairly common quote from Lewis. So he says, I'm trying to prevent people from saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis continues, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Okay, so eight years after speaking this, two years before it got published in Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote an essay entitled, What Are We to Make of Jesus? 
And in this essay, he draws attention to how the words of Jesus not only were spoken, right? Like, here are the things that he said, but he says, observe as you read through the scriptures how those words are received by others, okay? He writes, we may note that Jesus was never regarded by others as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He, he produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And in our text this morning in John 5, you know, one of the reasons we start our time together referencing what Lewis writes about here is that we find one of the many examples, right, many examples that display exactly what Lewis is describing, but on both counts, on both counts. Both a claim from Jesus that's indisputably not something a sane person could say if it wasn't true, as well as a response from the people listening that falls into one of the categories that Lewis just described. In fact, the entire purpose of the text is to draw out a response to Jesus. How are you going to respond to Jesus? And so Lewis's question, what are we to make of Jesus, becomes an appropriate title for the sermon. Jesus, having healed a lame man in the text last week, now faces some really serious charges from those who've heard about what happened and who now hear what Jesus says in response. Right? There's a question at the forefront of the people's minds here in the text. The question is, what are we to make of him? Of the things that he's saying, of the things that he's doing. Right? So in this way, the text becomes something of a, a courtroom drama in which we find three components of, of the trial of sorts that's unfolding here in chapter 5. Three components of a courtroom drama, all of which really serve to draw out our response to Jesus. They center in on this question, right? What are we to make of him? What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with the things that he says and what he does and why he says he came, you know, the work that he's accomplished? So um, let's ask that as we all look to the first component, starting in, actually, I'm going to back up, right? So I'm preaching 18 through 29. I didn't think I had enough text to preach through, frankly. No, that's not true at all. There's a lot that hit the cutting room floor. But we're going to back up to 16 and 17. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. All right, so if you remember the context, you know, I said, I said, we're going to have to come back to 16 and 17 next week because it's kind of these hinge verses that help us connect these two sections of text, right? Okay, but if you remember the context, Jesus heals this man. He heals this man who's been lame for 38 years. And rather than um, what would have been an appropriate response of awe and wonder, do you remember what the religious leaders do? They choose to focus on this man now carrying the mat on the Sabbath. Even though the Old Testament didn't prohibit this. Because if you remember, right, in order to solve the problem of breaking the Sabbath, as we talked about last week, there's this problem of people break, breaking the Sabbath. In order to solve that problem, the religious leaders added more law upon the law in order to cajole the people into obedience to this list of 39 things that Jesus is, is well aware of, right? He knows what he's doing. It's very intentional on his part. He knows these 39 things. So there's a list of 39 things that this is what the Old Testament means by work in order to keep people from crossing that line into sin. 
So the leaders aren't really outraged the Old Testament law has been broken because it really hasn't been. They're outraged that their authority from their perspective is being undercut. It's religious manipulation on their part, and that's all we're going to get into about last week. So go back and listen. It'll help you with context. But the text last week ended by saying, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And in this morning's text, Jesus responds to it. He responds to it. Actually, verse 17, if you look there, verse 17 says, Jesus answered them. That's what, that's really what this next section of text is. Jesus answered them. It doesn't just say, Jesus said to them, like John says in other places, or like the synoptics say, and Jesus said, and Jesus said. So Jesus answered. It has the sense of him making a, a courtroom defense, and to kind of add to that sense, that sense is strengthened further by the grammar in the text. We don't have to do an in-depth grammar lesson on a Sunday morning, but this is the middle voice of the verb, and that middle voice is used twice in all of John's gospel, here in verse 17 and then again in verse 19 of the same chapter. And whenever we see that middle voice, it really has strong, a strong legal component to it. A lot of the commentators note um, the middle voice of the verb is regularly found in legal documents in the same time period. There's a, there's a defense of oneself. The idea here is that Jesus is now responding directly to the opposition that he's facing starting here in chapter 5 and that he'll continue, like, increasingly facing this rising opposition as he moves forward. So he's responding to that. This is the, the first component of the courtroom drama. The claim made by Jesus. What does he claim? Okay, so if you're taking notes, first component, the claim made by Jesus. What does he claim? Well, interestingly enough, he doesn't claim that they've got a bad interpretation of the law. He could have, because they did. They had a bad interpretation. But that's not his defense, you know. He doesn't say, you know, I'm not somebody who makes my living as a miracle worker. Right? The Old Testament law stipulated that on the Sabbath I should stop my laboring in terms of my occupation, my job, the way that I provide for my family, rest in God's provision. But I don't make my living this way. I'm not a miracle worker that goes from town to town for money, performing signs. I was merely performing a good deed, which the scriptures in no way prohibit on the Sabbath. And, you know, this guy, he doesn't carry mats around for a living like we talked about last week, be a strange occupation for an invalid in the first century. So um, that's not what happened here. There's no law that's been broken. Jesus absolutely could have responded that way, and it would have been right, but he didn't. Instead, he focuses on the reality that the Sabbath is centrally about him, you know, about who he is and what he's come to do. Jesus is now our Sabbath rest, the true and better Sabbath rest, and the reason he can be our Sabbath rest is because of who he is and what he's come to do. So it involves making some claims here that's going to go beyond making people uncomfortable. So listen to Jesus' claim again. My father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. So in part of the first half of that statement, Jesus is just, he's just teaching the the dominant view of the day. Like, there's no argument with Jesus on this point. Nobody who's really going to disagree with the reality of part of the first part of that statement. God didn't cease from work on the Sabbath. Nobody thought that God rested on the Sabbath, right? There was a first century understanding. There was a Judaic understanding that was dominant that um, had God actually rested his work, the universe could not be sustained. So, in other words, it was God who was actually the only one who was able to provide rest for his people through his work. That by God's working, his people could find rest. But now the second half of that statement, as well as calling him father, but he says, Jesus then says, essentially, all of that applies to me. 
That's, that's the sticking point. That's the controversial part. Jesus says, okay, all of that stuff, it applies to me. This is really um, one of those C.S. Lewis statements that Jesus makes, you know, in which his claim would either be manipulative lies or pure psychosis if it weren't true. Because for his defense to be valid, you know, like I said, he doesn't come saying you have a bad view of the Old Testament. He comes saying that he has authority over the Sabbath. And for that defense to be valid, for it to work in any sense, everything that he's saying about God, that God works continuously and has the right to do so, is the one who's authoritative over the Sabbath, the one whose work brings the rest of us rest. All of that, he's saying, applies to me. There's no other way of parsing that statement out. So, okay, if you look at your notes, the way we're dividing this, this first section, the claim made by Jesus, the claim is equality with God. That's the claim. Equality with God. This is a claim of divinity. And it's also a claim of ultimate authority. You see evidence that this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Um, when we move now from, okay, the claim made by Jesus, equality of God, claim of divinity, to now the complaint against Jesus. The complaint against Jesus, second component of the courtroom drama. Complaint against Jesus, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Right? Why all the more? Well, they were seeking to kill him because of his Sabbath breaking, but now there's more to it because the text says not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. God. Okay, so we... We don't have a lot of time to spend here, mostly because we talked, we talked through a lot of this last week. Some of it's self-explanatory. Some of it we're going to talk about as we move forward. But the text tells us, you know, not only exactly what Jesus said, but how others understood him. That's the point. Like, that's the function. That's the role that verse 18 plays in the text. How did other people understand Jesus? You know, what Jesus was saying. Remember what Lewis wrote? We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. Indeed. Not only was he breaking their authority from their perspective, they, they had no authority in this sense, but not only was he undermining their authority by dictating what the law actually means and doesn't mean to people by going about this work, but here he makes himself equal with God. In his, in his own justification for doing this, he makes himself equal with, with God. He claims authority that only God could have. Now, to be fair, if what Jesus says about himself is not true, the religious leaders would be absolutely right this time. Last time, not so much. You know, uh, the man didn't actually break any Old Testament stipulation. So they were wrong about that. But, you know, if, if Jesus isn't divine, then this would be blasphemous. It would be blasphemous for someone who wasn't God to claim to be God. There are many ways in which we can see how destructive that claim can, can be, how manipulative, how much it's, it's harmful to the people around us. Cults gain their power through people claiming to be God, and they wreak all kinds of destruction and chaos, and it ultimately diminishes God. We also see it. We also see how destructive that is in our own attempt to overthrow God and put ourselves on the throne. Something we do daily. So whereas the claim made by Jesus is one of equality with God, a claim of divinity and authority, the complaint against Jesus is that he's diminishing God by claiming to be God, right? He's diminishing God. This is a charge of blasphemy. 
It's really serious. And the point here is, they don't believe his claim. They don't even consider another way of understanding him because really there isn't one. There's not another way of parsing that out. He's claiming equality with God. They understand that correctly. And just in case there are still a few folks, you know, who are hearing this go down and they're still saying, ah, you know, maybe the religious leaders misunderstand him. Well, here we see thirdly the case for his claim. The case for Jesus' claim. Jesus is going to now make the case to back up his claim and he doesn't. What, what doesn't he do? He doesn't say, you know, blasphemy is a serious charge, right? So he doesn't say, whoa, 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 time out, time out. No, no, no. I'm not saying I'm equal with God. That is not at all what I meant. No, he doubles down, you know. And in doing that, he makes this case with two primary focuses. One focus is going to be on who he is. It, it's it's going to be a, a case related to his identity. The other is going to be related to how we respond to that. You know, how must we respond to him, a case of our right response to him, which really cuts to the core of the passage. So these focuses, they're not really neatly divided, but I would say how Jesus is equal with God is really the focus of the first section of his case and the importance and significance of how we respond to Jesus is uh, the focus of the second section, largely. So first let's look at who Jesus is, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So, okay, thanks to Jesus, this is going to be, for a lot of people, the most controversial part of my sermon. Okay, he's the one who said it. All right. Um, a few points here. In this section of text, starting in verse 19, and really all the way into next week's section in verse 30, Jesus makes these clear statements about his own subordination to the Father, the Son's subordination to the Father, here through verse 30 in, in really some undeniable kinds of ways. Now, what that means and what that subordination of the Son to the Father looks like is hotly debated. And I want to say this morning that both extreme sides of this particular debate err quite a bit by attempting to define the sonship of Jesus according to cultural conditions rather than according to just what, what do the scriptures tell us. My part, for my part this morning, you know, I, I kind of, I thought about how much do, I do we really want to get into this this morning. This is one of the places in scripture when it relates to how Jesus relates to the Father, that if you're going to write about this, if you're going to think about this, people who've contributed, debate, everybody has to deal with John 5 because that's how, that's how strong the case that Jesus makes here is. So I think it would have been lazy. My conscience didn't dictate me sidestepping this. My, my, my purpose is to diffuse the debate a bit by demonstrating that there's there should be, as we read this text, way more common ground than we tend to think, but I might just agitate it further. We'll have to see how it goes. All right, let's start here. All of Christian theology, all of it, begins with who God is. And all of the Christian life, all of Christian living, Christian obedience, Christian discipleship flows out of that flows out of right theology. It flows out of theology. Well, it flows out of bad theology too. Like how we live is a reflection of what we believe about God, about the world around us, right? So our theology leads to our action in, in many different ways. So that means we need to be, to use care and precision and thoughtfulness related to our view of God. 
our view of theology. And what Jesus is saying here is significant because he's demonstrating that the one true God that Israel serves is a triune God. You know, the monotheism of Judaism, the reality that there's one God is absolutely correct. There is only one God according to the scriptures and the way that monotheism works is with distinct persons within one Godhead that are clearly visible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is important because on the one hand, we can't say, we can't say, well, maybe the Jews misunderstood him here as it relates to Jesus making himself equal with God. That's absolutely the claim he was making, that he's divine, right? Totally. But it's also clear that maybe you can say, well, the Jews don't understand what Jesus is saying as it relates to how he's equal with God. Because he's not saying he's equal as another God to the Father, like a bi-theism, like the Father is, God, is a God and I am a God. He's not saying that he's, e and we're equal gods. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that he's equal as a competing God. You've heard it said by that Old Testament God, but now as a New Testament God, I say to you, which is how a lot of times we deal with Jesus in the New Testament, is a competing God, right, to God the Father. That's not it at all. Rather, here you have two persons in the text, both distinct from one another, both the same one God. It's the reality of the Trinity, one God and three persons. We're going to talk a little bit about it. If as I talk about it, you're like, man, this is confusing. It's totally okay. It is. It's difficult to understand. But as Christians, you know, I think the temptation is, can we just move beyond the difficult bits to understand and uh, cut to the stuff that's a little bit more straightforward? And I don't think we can do that. We have to really do our best to understand all of how God uh, discloses himself to us. So um, the doctrine of the Trinity can be summarized in seven short statements. Hear me out. All right. There is only one God. That's the first statement, the short statement. There is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Okay, or as the Athanasian Creed puts it. Now this is the faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. And this is important. We're going to talk about what this means, but it's important because it's precisely. This is what Jesus is saying here. On the one hand, the Son and the Father are equally God. Jesus is saying he's equally God, equality with God. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Everything that applies to God in terms of his divinity and authority and work, ultimate work, ultimately applies, Jesus says, to me. You know, Jesus' defense makes no sense if he's not claiming that. It has to be. Otherwise, it's nonsense. And on the other hand, the Son, so that's true, right? And at the same time, the Son has a specific and distinct role from within the Godhead. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
So my father's working until now and I'm working, equal. Quality with God, no doubt. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Distinct. So a lot of debate in terms of how these distinctions work themselves out from within the Godhead. Some who claim these differences to be so stark that Jesus, and this is what I mean when I say both sides of, of this debate related to like Jesus' sonship and what it means that he's subordinate to the Father. Both sides err on the extremes. And because I think there are some who claim these differences to be so stark that Jesus, in his subordination to the Father, starts to really sound like a lesser being than the Father. And there are guys who I read them on this and I'm like, ooh, I would not put it that way. The Athanasian Creed, which formally expresses what the church has believed to be the orthodox position on the Trinity throughout its history, makes it abundantly clear that we are not to divide the essence of the persons so that they're unequal, that there's Trinity, unity and Trinity, right? Trinity and unity. If in one's attempt to draw attention to the Son's subordination to the Father, we find language that makes him sound like he's lesser than the Father, we come right up to the line of a false view of God and perhaps even step right over it. We need to say, as Christians, we worship, we worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. And so sometimes, in a desire to show the distinction between Jesus and the Father, for various reasons, usually to, to make a cultural point rather than a biblical one sometimes, we come too close to drifting into a view on Jesus that makes him lesser. And there's danger that abounds with that, because in Jesus we see God himself, in Jesus we see the one who came to save us. In Jesus, we see the one whose authority and power makes it possible that we can be saved. Okay. On the, on the other hand, it's true, you know, that we currently live in a culture where I would say the other side of things, you know, the other aspect of the Trinity, the distinction between the Father and the Son is difficult to accept. It's difficult to accept. Because the cultural norm, really the cultural teaching of our day and I would say it's crept into even Christian institutions and Christian universities. So that it's difficult to find a Christian university that doesn't regularly teach and indoctrinate Christians in this line of thinking. Is that, it's three words, equality necessitates sameness. That's the view of our day. Equality necessitates sameness. That in order for things to be equal, they have to be the same. In order for equality to, be, to exist, there must be no differences. So there's a concerted effort in culture to erase or minimize differences because it's seen as a barrier to equality. And as a result, when this side of the, and, and I, I fundamentally reject that view of equality, but when this side of the argument says there's no subordination in the relationship between the Father and the Son, even upon reading this section in John 5, where, where like like-minded people from very different theological streams can come together, look at John 5 and say, okay, yeah, uh, the, the stretching that you have to do in order to get around Jesus saying that he's subordinate in this context is very impressive, right? Um, clear statements are made. So when this side of the argument says there's no subordination, even upon reading this section, or that somehow this subordination works in both directions, they come all, like this mutual subordination, mutual submission, in the Trinity, they come all the way up to the line of what amounts to a false view of God and perhaps even at times step over it in the other direction. In the Godhead, if you minimize the differences of these three distinct persons out of an effort to find equality within the three persons, you're also at odds with 2,000 years of historically orthodox Christianity, the Athanasian Creed, 
formally expresses what the church has believed is the orthodox position on the Trinity for, for its history makes it clear we are not to blend the persons of the Godhead, to erase those distinctions and differences between the Father and the Son is also a false view of God. So, okay, let's center ourselves here a bit. I want to quote him because it's going to help us be precise. precise. And with this text, guys, precision is the name of the game. Carson, D.A. Carson, says this. And I think it strikes at the heart of verse 19. Though Jesus is the unique Son of God and may be truly called God, and take to himself divine titles and, as is in this context, divine rights. Yet he is always submissive to the Father. Not only does the Son always do what pleases the Father, but he can only do what he sees the Father doing. Right? The text tells us that. Carson continues, he says, In this sense, the relationship between the Father and the Son is not reciprocal. It is inconceivable that John could say that the Father does only what he sees the Son is doing. That would be preposterous not only in the cultural understanding of father-son relationships, but also in John's understanding of the relationship between Jesus and his heavenly father, unlike those who try to make the father-son relationships perfectly reciprocal by saying that each defers to the other. Carson says this is a fudge category that blurs the obvious distinctions. The father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants, the son responds, obeys, performs his father's will, receives authority. And in this picture, if you've stuck with me, in this picture we see a picture of gospel graces. We see a picture of the narrative of redemptive history. The argument is, listen, the father and the son, and the spirit, but the focus in the text is father and the son, are distinct persons of the Godhead. But those distinctions have clarifiers because they're equally God. And, and even in those distinctions we start to see the gospel Proclaimed, right? So we see them, see the, a series of clarifiers that Jesus now makes with these four statements. Four, 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 four. There's, there's four, four statements in the text. It's going to help us give some details, some clarifiers to what Jesus means and doesn't mean with this talk about subordination. He says, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. There's unity in the Godhead. There's unity in the Godhead. There's unity from within the Trinity. You don't have these competing wills, you know, in which Jesus purposes to do something over against the Father. In fact, we're going to see when we get to, to verse 30, it's impossible for the Son to take independent and self-determined action that would send him, set him on a different course from his Father. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. This is why it's so wrong-headed, as we've talked about in weeks past, to refer to the Father decreeing and sending the Son and the Son going to the cross to absorb the Father's wrath as divine child abuse. You see the problem with that? The Father and the Son are the same God. They share the same mind. There's no division here. There's unity from within God. Second four statement, verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. Here we see love. Unity in the Godhead, love within the Godhead. It's perfect love from within who God is that really brings about everything that God does. This love from within God himself, the Father perfectly loving the Son, Son perfectly loving the Father is demonstrated by the Father showing the Son 
everything he does, everything he's doing. And this isn't quite a parable, you know, but Jesus is absolutely using an analogy, an earthly analogy, as a means of expressing this idea of the Father's love for the Son, okay? Um, the analogy, I think, was easier to understand in the first century, where the vast majority of people in the first century, were, and we've talked about this at GLC before, but the vast majority of people in the first century would simply work their father's trade, right? So still happens today, still happens today. But if your father was a baker, you became a baker. If your father was a tailor, you became a tailor, right? That's just what happened. Now there are some of us for whom this is true, even, in, even from within here at Gospel Life Church. But imagine, you know, imagine with me. A son in the first century learning a trade from the father, perhaps carpentry. And he comes into the workshop to see what his dad is doing. And the dad says, get out of here. It's not your time yet. You ju just figure it out on your own when it's your time. You know, this is my time, right? One day you'll be the heir of the shop. And when that's the case, you'll have to figure out how to make better tables than me or the same great tables that I make. But not today, not today. Rather than inviting him into his workshop carefully and intentionally, showing him the kind of wood that he uses, everything that he does every single day so that things operate a certain way in the making of these tables again and again and again. You know, this idea, just figure it out on your own, that response could not possibly be motivated by love. The idea is if you love the child, you desire to show them everything you do, take great joy to watch them do the work also. Now, the point of that analogy is not, it's not that Jesus wasn't equal with the Father and like a child he needed to learn what he didn't know but that the Father knew Rather, it's just like the son who's loved by the father and shown everything that the father does comes to do the exact same work that his father would do and show his father's legacy to the world. So the son, Jesus Christ, being himself perfectly loved by the father and of the same mind of the father related to his work, then by doing the work of the father, the son actually reveals the father to the world, reveals the father to us. That's the theme throughout John's gospel, right? We talked about this in the prologue. Jesus came to reveal God to us. The Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came that we might know the one true God. And the basis for his revealing himself to us in that way, the basis for God showing us himself in Jesus Christ, on the one hand, yeah, it was his love for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes, right, should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave. So, yeah, there's a sense in which the basis for that claim is his love for the world. But even before that, it wasn't primarily even his love for us, but rather his, the love that the father had for the son and, and, and the love that the son has for the father. This is why it's so important that we understand the Trinity, that we seek to understand even the complicated bits of theology, because it's from who God is that we can now learn to follow him. As we said in, in the prologue, God didn't create out of some kind of deficit that he possessed. Where he needed love, so he created us to love him. He needed glory, so he created us to glorify him. He needed companionship because he was getting kind of lonely from eternity past. So he created us to keep him company. No, he had perfect love and all glory 
in who he was and, and perfect companionship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit from within the Godhead. So he didn't come to receive that love from us, but rather to spread the love that he already possessed to us that we might come to marvel at it. All right, now we see, so we've seen unity within the Godhead. We've seen love within the Godhead. Now we see life and judgment, authority over life, authority over judgment, verses 21 and 22. For, the third four statement, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So the Father showing him his work, the giving of life. The Son, who has the same work, doing that work, the giving of life. Author Jesus has authority over life. Verse 22, authority over judgment. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. All authority for judgment has been given from the Father to the Son. Why? That all might honor the Son, receive the Son. Like, that they might see that the Son reveals God to, to, to us and believe upon his name. At the foundation of the passage, we see ultimately what it teaches is to reject Jesus is to reject God. To reject who Jesus is is to reject who his father is. Jesus displaying that for us. Jesus revealing that to us. Because the claim made by Jesus was one of equality with God. A claim of divinity. A claim of authority. The complaint against him was that he was diminishing God. A charge of blasphemy. So naturally the case for his claim is that he actually reveals God to us. That he is God. That he reveals God. It's a case of his identity as the son to the father. At the foundation of Jesus' case is who he is. He's the eternally preexistent second person of the Trinity, God himself, who entered into human history to reveal his Father to us, to show us himself, to show us how we might be reconciled to the Father, who needed nothing from us. He needed nothing from us, but he came to us as the ultimate expression of the love he already possessed within himself. And that's why the case for his identity is also a case for our right response, you know? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. It's now here. Salvation, the day of salvation is today. It's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Like we think back on this, this lame man early on in chapter 5 hearing the voice of the Son to get up. This is a picture of what Jesus holds out to us. We hear his voice, right? It's, the day is now here when the dead those who are spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. They will have life that begins now and goes on for all eternity. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, there's a restatement, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming... When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to resurrection of judgment. Listen. You know, maybe when you get home, maybe when you get home, do this. Read this text again. Just by yourself. Go into a room, close the door, and just read this text. And ask yourself, 
you were to just hear some guy say these things about himself, would you, like, be comfortable sending your children under his care? You know, if some guy on the street, some guy in your church was making these kinds of statements, oh, what a good teacher. I love his ethics, right? If, G if Jesus made these claims, you know, about himself, he's either a shyster, he's like an L. Ron Hubbard type who says, yeah, the quickest way to get rich is to invent a religion, and then he writes a bunch of nonsense and a, gets a following. Or a, a Joseph Smith type who claims kind of this special side gospel that only he has access to and nobody else is allowed to see it. He's a shyster, or he's a crazy person, or he is who he says he is. Like, no more riding the fence of loving the ethics of Jesus, either the ethics or the ethics of a narcissistic maniac, or it's the ethics of God himself entered into human history. And so it's interesting, because what we find at the tail end of the text is that there will be a judgment made. Jesus began using this language of a defendant on trial, using this middle voice that's common in, like, statements of defense, okay? A trial in which, by the way, it turns out he's completely innocent. Not because he didn't really say that he's God, but because he is actually who he says he is. He is who he claims to be. So the text began with this appearance that Jesus was on trial, but by the end of the trial, we come to find that positions have been reversed, like we didn't notice it all along. Like we thought the bench that he was standing behind was the defendant's bench. Turns out it was like the ju judge's bench. Now we're starting to see the positions have been reversed. Jesus is actually the one presiding over the trial as judge, just as the Father has given him authority to do, and we are now the ones on trial as the response of the people hearing and continually into chapter 6 will show us, the verdict is a guilty one. The verdict is guilty. The son didn't come into the world to condemn because the world already was condemned. Sin's already entered the world. The verdict's guilty. And all the responses that we see in the gospel according to John, the verdict's a guilty one. So what do we do with Jesus? Well, um, you know, the natural response of the human heart is to reject his, his authority in favor of our own. That's why the verdict's a guilty one. Just as the Jewish leaders do here in chapter 5. Like, that's such a perfect picture into the human heart. Our natural proclivity is to reject Christ in favor of my own authority. It echoes the exact same problem. You know, there's a problem at the end of this section that echoes the exact same problem that the Apostle Paul writes about in the book of Romans. Because Jesus says, if you look at verse 29, he says, those who've done good will inherit resurrected life. Those who've done evil will be given resurrect resurrection to judgment. You know, and that echoes almost entirely Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, in which Paul writes, similarly, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and peace for everyone who does good. The problem, though, is, as, as Jesus makes clear throughout all of his teaching, as John makes clear, as he writes that one of the major themes of this book, as the Apostle Paul makes clear that when we get to chapter 3, there's no one who can do that. Like, it's really easy, I think, to read verse 29. Those who have done good will inherit resurrected life. Those who have done evil will be given resurrection to judgment. Okay, good, I'll just do the good thing. I'll, I'll do good, and I'll be resurrected to life. Really easy to read Paul 
In 2, 6 through 8, there'll be tribulation, distress for every human being who does evil. I'm going to avoid that. Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Yeah, I'll just do that then. But then you get to chapter 3 of Romans, right? You read the rest of John. No one does good. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. If your basis is putting all of your, your, your chips right on being able to do this thing, doing good to inherit resurrected life rather than doing evil, you're in a lot of trouble because it turns out there's only one person in all of human history who's done good and on the basis of that merit has merited eternal life. There's only one person who's given glory and honor and peace because he's done good. And yet that person who, who deserved the embrace of the Father, who was given an, truly an innocent verdict, took on the punishment for our guilt. So the Father sent the Son as a judge who does the following crazy thing. Imagine it, right? The guilty verdict has been made. We've all done evil. No one has done good except for one, that judge. But the judge now stands up from his elevated seat and comes out from behind the bench that separates him from the defendant. And, and at the time of sentencing, the verdict has been given, but at the time of sentencing, he takes the defendant's place. The judge receiving the wrath that the defendant was due so that now we might have life in him. What are we to make of Jesus? He holds out good news to you. And that good news is that through his death on your behalf, you can now have life in him forever. He has authority over life. He has authority over judgment. How will you respond to what he says? How will you respond to who he says he is? The options that are set forth are either to reject Jesus, continue to rely on our own innocence, somehow try to find our way out by, by our own good works, but the more we do that, the more we realize we can't do it. Or to believe that he is who he says he is, to throw yourselves on the mercies of God that you might know him. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't know him, if you've got questions about how you might know him, or even if you're already inwardly crying out to him to save you, uh, because you find yourself very much, even if you grew up in the church, and you find yourself very much in the same situation that Art and Mary talked about, where there's just this... I know that there's sin that needs to be dealt with. I know that my standing before God needs to be dealt with. Do not leave here this morning before telling someone else. Like we don't do this at the end of every sermon, but here we have a sermon, here we have a text that's primarily about our response to Christ on the basis of who he is. So if you're here and you do not know him and you're sensing this prompting, talk to someone here before you leave. Don't walk out those doors. Come forward and talk with me immediately after the service. Today is the day of salvation. The day is here even now, the text says. If you're here and you already believe, the call is to continue to see how it's his grace alone that makes you right before the Father, that you might continue to grow in his grace and love. His good news is at the center of all of this, which is why we proclaim it weekly here at the table. If you're a believer, this meal is for you as a reminder of the grace of the gospel. And so I invite you forward, take these elements with you back to your seats and we'll proclaim this gospel together here in a moment.